The word of God that engages us this morning is going to come to us from the gospel that, Je- uh, that Abby just read, and it's, uh, it's widely believed that the gospel of Mark is told from the perspective of Peter, and as he often does, today we get to see how Peter responds to Jesus and what he says. And I had like a little intro and something cute and funny, but it's one of those days, maybe it's because at least three people said, what's with the Hawaiian shirt, that I'm thinking that, you know, when you get in the pool, and I know I've used this before, but you got to walk the steps, right, to get warm for the waters. Some people just jump in. Those are crazy people. That's what we're doing today. We're going to be crazy people. We're not walking the steps back and forth with some cute little intro. We're jumping right in. So if you got your Bibles, let's open them up to Mark chapter 8 as we look through these verses that we just read. If it's in your bulletin as well, maybe it'll definitely be up on the screens as we follow along. So Jesus, we're we're, we're coming in here and we're beginning with this verse here. And you see that on the way, that on the way is going to occur nine different times in chapters 8 through 12 in the Gospel of Mark. It's reminding us that the way of the Lord, this on the way that he's going, the one John the Baptist declared at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, is fulfilled when Jesus gets to the way, gets to the place, which is Jerusalem, which is the cross. And since on the way is going to include humiliation, it's going to include rejection, it's going to include suffering and eventually death, Jesus is raising the question of faith rooted in who he is. And I think it's worth noting that Jesus asks this question in the midst of the journey. Not at the end of his journey when everything has been answered and the proof is at hand because he has risen from the dead and there's no other answer. He's asking the disciples this question that's coming up in the middle when they have seen some stuff, in the middle where there's more stuff to come and not all of it good. And he asks them in the middle in the everyday normal life of walking and talking because he is getting them ready because with faith, with trust in Jesus, must come a willingness to act on that trust in the faith of other expectations, in the face of other troubles that are going to come. He is showing them and he is showing us that faith means actively following Jesus on the way. Not just demanding signs or turning to go one's own way whenever it's convenient, but we are going to be called to follow and to trust Jesus on the way. And he asks by asking, Who do others say I am? Which again, I like to nerd out on stuff like this. But this very question the disciples asked each other in the midst of the storm, remember? They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But there's there's something that needs to be addressed here in this question because he requires the disciples to form and express their own judgment about him rather than merely getting the views of others. They must separate themselves from the majority of the opinion eventually and risk a personal confession. Now, when the disciples answer first and he says, who do they say I am? They answer and some say John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And now, no Old Testament figure held such fascination for first century Judaism as Elijah. Not because of anything he did or something that he accomplished, but because when Elijah died, he was taken bodily up to heaven. And then it was believed that he was the one who was going to oversee the deeds of mortals, that he would comfort the faithful, that he would help the needs, and above all, he would return as the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so we can see, well, some are saying that you are Elijah. 
Others saying he's John or a prophet, which is basically just a way of saying that he's one of the stellar figures in Israel's history that has come now and uh, is here to be a good teacher, to be a good moral example. And this may seem like an honor or a compliment, but it denies who Jesus truly is. It denies his true identity as the Son of God who has come to save sinners. And you know as well as I do as the text continues, Jesus is not content with hearing just what others think as if his mission is going to be decided by his standing in the local polls or what he wants to hear from each of his followers. Instead, he says, but what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? And Peter gives the answer, right? You are the Messiah. And this question, who do you say I am, is the central question of Mark's gospel and really of every presentation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospels. The essential meaning of faith is contained in the answer that is believed in the heart and confessed with the mouth about who Jesus is. So I know this is weird, but let's do it. Let's confess what we believe about Jesus right now in the middle of the sermon. Have you ever done that before? Did somebody say yes? Man, I thought I was so smart doing this. Okay, one person said no, so we're doing it. Ready? This is what you believe. Ready? Are you ready to say it? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's more than just words. That is the declaration of your faith, the stance that we take on who Jesus is, what God has done as the creator, what Jesus has done for us as our redeemer, and what the Holy Spirit does to bring us to faith and to keep us in that faith. Like the disciples, it's this declaration of what we believe, what we believe who Jesus is that must move us from the passive recipients that each one of us is, passive recipients meaning salvation, right? Because our salvation is given to us on Jesus Christ alone and what he has done. It's never by anything that we do, but salvation is given to us completely in what Christ Jesus did and accomplished for us on the cross when he rose from the dead. But he moves us from just being passive recipients to now active participants. We go from answering the question of who we say Jesus is, to then continuing on the way with him, no longer as spectators, but as participators, first by confession and then by action. Then there's this one verse that I just want to address. It's verse 30. I'm always like, why? Why not yet? Well, Jesus says this in this moment because Peter while declaring Jesus as the Messiah, has supplied the, the proper title, but he and the other disciples still have the wrong understanding. See, they were still thinking that the Messiah was going to lead in a rebellion, would lead a revolt against the Romans, would take back their land, would give them freedom. They weren't ready for the Messiah who would put on a servant's towel, who instead of wearing a... Uh, 
a warrior's armor, would instead put on a crown of thorns, would practice sacrifice and forgiveness above revenge. A Messiah who did not come to inflict suffering, but rather to suffer himself as a ransom for many. So Jesus warns them not to tell because they don't fully yet understand. Because he's not the expected Messiah that they have. But the one who comes for us all. Verse 31 continues and says, he then began to teach them all these different things, right? The Son of Man must suffer. The suffering, the rejection, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of Man. And though these things are shocking, and though these things are offensive, really, they are the essential content of Jesus' identity. Now, the line that starts verse 32 there, that he spoke plainly about this. Do you see that one? It's almost at the end of that first paragraph. I think, I think that verse doesn't get enough attention because we always kind of go to the next one where Jesus is calling somebody Satan. But plainly really means boldly and confidently. Jesus is saying this because it's not a whisper or something that maybe the disciples misunderstood because he, he rushed the line like uh, 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 Ocean's Eleven. George Clooney does, right? This is the same clear-sightedness that the blind man received when all of a sudden he could immediately see and clearly and confidently speak. This word, this, right here, that, that bit he spoke plainly about, this is talking about the logos, the word that we hear in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the word was God. He's speaking plainly and confidently because here he is as the Messiah, as the Son of God, has come to endure suffering on your behalf. This is not some religious idea. This is the foundation of what his work here has done. And Peter didn't get this. He couldn't understand it. Or could we be so bold as saying, maybe he got it a little bit, but he didn't want it. What a powerful scene when Jesus is speaking plainly and confidently about what is going to happen and what he must do. And then a friend pulls him aside and says, you're wrong. That's not going to happen. And Jesus stops, he looks right at him, and then he looks at all of them and tells Peter, watch out. Get out of the way and get on my way. You're caring too much about worldly things and you are missing the way. And that, I think, is the danger for all of us. I think, well, at least for me, I think it's easy to feign ignorance and say, well, I, I don't really get exactly what Jesus is saying about following him. I don't get why he says that, because I, I, shouldn't we just be doing not things that are hard, but do things that feel right? Shouldn't I be able to know, like, okay, this feels right, this must be the way? Or maybe really, have you ever spent time arguing yourself out of following Jesus' way, saying, did Jesus really say that I have to do this or that? And even without the help of a whispering snake in my ear telling me that, did Jesus really say that? I can convince myself of half-truths, of half-righteousnesses, of half-ways, so that I don't have to do what I don't want to do. 
I don't have to do what's, what's, what's hard and what's difficult. But instead, I get this beautiful way when I follow Jesus of, I think I'll just be able to do, kind of do both. A sort of good way of following Jesus, and then it's the bad way, I'm going to sit out on that one. When things are valued, I'm going to follow that way. And as long as I value Jesus as well, this is a pretty good way. I think we're both happy. As long as the way that I'm going and the way that you've promised me you've gone all ends up in the same spot, I like that. That's the way, that's the, that's the way that I want to go. And if you've felt that, you know how shameful it is. And how very hard it is to stop and sit and admit that the way that I want is different than the way that Jesus has told me to go. And it's sitting there in the brokenness where we are to remember that shame and guilt and sin aren't supposed to have a place in our life. And when we are done trying to get out of pretending to be a disciple, it's these words of Jesus here that motivate us to be a disciple. The word that he has spoken plainly, confidently, and boldly. Remember again, the idea of worthiness is absent here. So when we read this, let us remember that following Christ in self-denial and even suffering is not about becoming worthy or receiving salvation for what we do. But carrying your cross, it's personal, is the necessity not for your salvation, but the calling that comes with your salvation. And that's a distinction. That carrying your cross and following Jesus is not for your salvation, but in response to it. It's still not optional, because we have to. So you are reading this, and you are hearing this correctly. You must deny yourself and pick up your cross, not to receive salvation, but to continue on the way of your salvation, not to keep it, but to work it out. Because this has never been about a both, an and, or an either, or. The claim of Jesus is a total one, an exclusive one. It does not allow for a convenient compartmentalization of your spiritual life, from your work life to your home life to where you stand completely now, fully, under the claim of Christ who has claimed you, mind, heart, soul, body, all of you. And so we as disciples must be strong. We as disciples of Jesus must stand up against the oppressing tyranny of the evil one who is after our souls and our mind and our hearts and our flesh as he, as he relentlessly is trying to undermine you, tempting you, lying to you about how you have to follow Jesus, trying to tell you that if it's too hard, don't do it, that it's not worth it, that it's going to be okay in the end, that this way is better. Don't do that. But we must follow Jesus no matter what. Before comfort and luxury, before acceptance, before finances, you have been called and committing yourself to following the Lord. And then in humility, and as we just sang, by surrendering, cherish, love it, desire it, and want the way of Jesus Christ. Because he says, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what have you given in exchange for it? If you're ashamed, it's not worth it. 
It isn't worth to have the whole world, everything you could possibly hope for at the cost of your soul. He says the world you can live without, but when you lose who you are, the personhood, your being, your internal soul, what are you going to give for that? Nothing is worth that. And look at the Old Testament language he uses by calling them a, a sinful and adulterous generation. He's saying, stop honoring me with your lips and saying the words, but your heart being so far from me. Because here we are now in the middle of your life called to pick up your cross and follow. Because the Messiah is the one who lived the way. And the Messiah is the one who at the cross brought real change. Change to the broken pieces inside of us. To the shame that, that we have taken upon ourselves and given in exchange for it. He loves us truly and heals us completely. And the one that is no longer afraid has been given the spirit of courage. Has been given stick to is surrounded in love despite the grief and the suffering that the middle of life brings. And if you are searching for something more, something to fill the void, if you are tired of pretending, if you are tired of going through the motions, waking up, burning through the day, recycling it, take a shower, do the whole thing again, if you're ready for the change, it comes right here in the invitation of pick up your cross and follow me. That's the change that you are longing for in your life. The change you can sense that the world needs starts by picking up your cross and following him. It is an invitation that he has given you for change, a sense of miraculous in the everyday, ordinary middle of the life is found only at the cross of Jesus. And it's been too long. Too long have we said it's, we're too tired. Now we go. We go where he himself has led. We go to walk and to enjoy everything that he has given us through his victory. The abundant life that he himself has won for you. Now we get to practice and live it out in that self-denial and that love for others. And I'm going to close with this, this beautiful piece from Romans 12. And this is the, uh, the Eugene Peterson's message translation of it. I really like it. It says, love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflame. Be alert, servants of the master. Cheerfully expect him. Don't quit in the hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. Don't curse under your breath. Laugh with the happy friends when they're happy and share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. And if you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. And Scripture is clear that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy them lunch 
And if they're thirsty, get them something to drink because your generosity will surprise them with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. It is clear who Christ Jesus is. It is clear, plainly, what he has done for each one of you. So let us boldly pick up our cross and follow him today.